It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On November the 14th, four days after his troops retook the city of Kherson, Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise appearance. He joined the crowds gathered there to mark the end of eight months of Russian occupation and watched the Ukrainian flag being raised high above the main square. Is it the beginning of the, of the end of the war? Of course, you see our strong army. We are step by step coming uh, to, our, to our country, to all the temporary occupied territories. President Zelensky's declaration invoked the words Winston Churchill uttered after the Battle of El Alamein in 1942, three years before the Second World War came to an end. The conflict in Ukraine is also far from over. Front lines are in constant flux and Russia clings on to swathes of land in the east. But Ukraine has momentum. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how could Ukraine win the war? My guest is a veteran of the battlefields of Europe and beyond, retired US Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He enlisted in 1980 and spent 38 years in the army, leading operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. He served as NATO Allied Land Commander in Turkey from 2012 to 2014, and his last assignment was as Commanding General of the US Army Europe. Since retirement, he's worked for think tanks and is now a senior advisor for Human Rights First, an NGO. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, welcome to The Economist Asks. And thank you for having me. How would you characterize the state of the war today? Ukraine has achieved irreversible momentum. There's no going back. It is too early to start planning a victory parade, of course, but there's no doubt that Ukraine is going to win, that they're going to compel Russian forces to leave Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. We're going to come back on some of the detail of that, but just in a nutshell, you sound like the supreme optimist about Ukraine's victory chances. Am I right? Yes, I am. But I don't say that because I hope it's so. It's because I believe it's so. We know from history that war is a test of will. And it's a test of logistics. As I look at Ukrainian people and Ukrainian soldiers versus uh, the will of Russian soldiers and the Russian population, and then the rapidly improving logistical situation for Ukrainians versus the rapidly deteriorating logistical situation for Russians, this is why I'm very optimistic. Let's talk a bit more about that later and what that might look like and some of the challenges. But sticking with what happened in Kherson City... How do you think the Ukrainian army should be capitalizing on what is perceived, both in Ukraine and outside, as momentum? So Kherson 
represents an important development on several different levels. First of all, strategically, obviously it's important because it's a psychological boost for Ukrainian people who have been enduring these uh, attacks on cities and their power infrastructure. It also is a, an embarrassment for the Kremlin. And then from an operational standpoint, if we think of, of Kherson as the right wing of the counteroffensive that started in September, the left wing being in the part that's coming down from Kharkiv in the direction of Mariupol, Kherson is the right wing. Now, all of the approaches into Crimea, the Perikop Isthmus, are now within range of HIMARS. That means defenses, logistics are all in range of Ukrainian weapon systems. On the other hand, Russian and Ukrainian troops have the same situation before them. Winter, which of course can be brutal in this part of the world, difficult geography, shortages of ammunition, supply difficulties there and in troops. And also, it's thought that Russia has sent a lot of its best troops to east of the Dnieper River. Are you underweighting what may be working to Moscow's advantage here? I could be guilty of underestimating some things, but I have to say, and I don't see any evidence of that. The so-called better units that were in Harrison for the past several months have been suffering huge casualties. So while they may have a distinctive uh, name and shoulder patch that they're the VDV, that's not the same unit that went in there several months ago. I think that it was a prudent thing for them to get out of Harrison, to shorten their lines uh, a little bit, try to strengthen their defenses. And of course, what they're trying to do overall is to drag this war out. They know that they're not going to win on the battlefield. That's not going to happen. And therefore, the strategy is to drag it out in hopes that all of us, the U.S., the U.K., Germany, others, will grow weary of supporting Kiev. They're doing two things. They're trading bodies for time. These thousands of uh, recently mobilized men, the very unlucky ones who were not able to get out of Russia in time. And then, of course, the constant attacks on uh, Ukrainian cities and power infrastructure, which is intended to weaponize refugees, to get Ukrainians going into Western Europe, which will put pressure on those capitals to put pressure on Kiev. So your question's a fair one, but no, I don't think that I'm underestimating. Another possible push point on that would be, well, Ukraine's success in Kharkiv in September was because Russian lines were stretched. They were thin there. In Kherson, you could say it was down to geography. It could bomb those strategically vital bridges over the Dnieper and destroy Russia's supply lines. So it wasn't so much a sweeping Ukrainian maneuver as those factors which came together, and I'm sure were well managed there by the Ukrainian forces. But Russia has had time to reflect, to consolidate. Do you think that Ukraine will take more ground before the end of the year, or is this where it stops for now? So I would like to turn around your description there and reframe it as where we are now is the result of a combination of factors that include skilled thorough planning by the Ukrainian general staff. They understand the strengths and the weaknesses of the Russian forces. They understand the terrain because it is Ukraine. And I was so impressed with the design of this counteroffensive. You know, it started in the first week of September in terms of action, but really it began back, I think, in the late spring, early summer, when the Ukrainians could see that the Russians were going to culminate probably by August, that they would not be able to continue 
their offensive anywhere. And then therefore they planned a counteroffensive that would begin in early September. And there was so much talk about this big Kherson summer counteroffensive that the Russians took the bait and shifted forces away from Kharkiv down towards Kherson. So yes, the lines were thinner up around Kharkiv, not just because of good luck, but because the Ukrainians lured them to shift away from there. Winter is approaching. How do you see that changing the balance? Who is better prepared for general winter? All the talk about the winter, that somehow there's a fighting season and things are going to stop, that's the last thing that the Ukrainians want, a relaxation of the pressure on Russian forces. In fact, my assessment is that Ukrainians expect or want to be in position by January to begin the final phase of the campaign, which is the liberation of Crimea. Things will move slower because of trafficability for wheeled vehicles. Uh, visibility will be reduced. But there's no doubt that Ukrainian forces will be better equipped for the winter. UK, Canada, Germany, all providing winter equipment to the Ukrainians. The Russians are having to import winter equipment from North Korea. You've referenced the West's support for Ukraine a number of times as we've been talking. But that has some as yet unanswered questions. The former NATO Secretary General, George Robertson, argued in a piece he wrote for us at The Economist recently that the West needs to act more decisively. I suppose the real point of his arrow here is he thinks that the West is procrastinating or at least in many ways responding too slowly to events. Do you think he's right? Of course he is. And I've known Lord Robertson for quite some time. So there's two aspects of this. There's the long term and the short term. In the short term, I'm proud of what the United States and UK and others have done to support Ukraine. And I support about 95% of the Biden administration's approach. But for some reason, we can't bring ourselves to say we want Ukraine to win. And so we stopped short of providing things like ATACMS, the rocket that has the 300 kilometer range, which would have huge effect in favor of Ukraine. We, we can't seem to bring ourselves to provide tanks that are available. And of course, Germany won't do it until the United States does it. I don't understand that reluctance. I was going to say, what do you put that down to? There's still are good, smart, hardworking people in the Pentagon and the White House that believe that somehow, if we do one certain thing, that Russia will escalate and it'll get out of control. I absolutely do not believe that. Um, the Russians are not going to escalate because they can't. I think this is misguided, bad policy here. Russia is targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure. About half of the electrical grid is estimated to have been wiped out. The Ukrainian Air Force has said the strikes are a drain on its air defense systems and their success hinges on Western military supplies. But those stockpiles are dwindling as the conflict continues. So, you have a situation where you have increased production promised, but are you really seeing signs that this is being ramped up? And listening, as I do, to reports from Ukraine, I would say that's possibly the area where you, you hear the most stress in the accounts that are being given about what is going on with infrastructure and the risks of infrastructure just being bashed ahead of anything else that can be shored up or, or improved. I've been impressed with how resilient Ukrainians are. Uh, I'm from the state of Florida uh, originally, and, and you know we know something about recovery after hurricanes and that sort of thing. And I would say that Ukrainian engineers are even better than Florida engineers at restoring power 
that's been destroyed. Now, I don't, I'm not making light of it, uh, and the Russians are going to continue to come after it as long as they have the resources to do so. One of the issues there is measuring morale. One, it's quite hard. Two, it's very clear that Ukraine does have, on the whole, high morale. But if its stockpiles are shrinking and procurement is too slow, which uh, was your earlier point, how should we be thinking more about what to do? I mean, Ukraine is asking for fighter jets. The West has yet to meet that call. So morale is one thing, but hardware is another. And you, you can't advance much on morale alone. Well, true, but I I think you're understating what is being provided. The United States and others are looking everywhere where we can find artillery ammunition, rockets, capabilities. Turkey has just announced that they're going to provide long-range rocket launchers. I think that there are still lots of untapped sources that the United States and UK and others are going to help leverage to get to uh, Ukraine. President Biden has committed about $18 billion in security assistance since February alone. The Democrats then lost control of the House in the midterms. There are a handful of Republicans who are hostile to sending more to Ukraine. How durable do you think Congress's support for aid to Kiev is turning out to be? Bipartisan congressional support is absolutely going to continue. More than 70 percent of Americans favor continuing to support Ukraine, that'll be reflected in the bipartisan support of the Congress. As long as the president continues to uh, make the case of why this is good for America, why it's important for America, then I feel confident that American support will continue and therefore support from other allies will continue. Well, you're speaking to us from Germany, where you you now live. And how do you see the European outlook on that? We have seen anti-war protests across Central Europe, obviously a tough winter for the continent. Governments have focused on the cost of living crisis, France and Germany sparring over energy and defence policy priorities and where the pain should fall. You're not concerned that there is a bit of a fraying of the European ties on this question? I actually am encouraged. Last night, I spoke to a group of 60 Germans, uh, mostly college students, but some also closer to my age. And I would say probably 95% of the people in that group here in Frankfurt that I spoke to were completely in favor of supporting Ukraine and are frustrated that their own government has been somewhat reluctant. Within the coalition, it's primarily the SPD, the Social Democrats, that traditionally have been the most, let's say, uh, pro-Russian over the decades. And so it was important that the German federal president, Mr. Steinmeier, and the former German uh, foreign minister, Mr. Sigmar Gabriel, both of whom are SPD, both said we were wrong. And I think most Germans feel betrayed by Russia, and that's why they're willing to continue support. But Germans still, I think, lack self-confidence and are reluctant to get out in front and say, you know what, we're going to lead, we're going to provide leopard tanks, we're going to provide martyrs, and they are waiting for the U.S. to do the same. If there is a dividing line, even among those who very strongly support Ukraine in this war, it may be that it is focused on Crimea and the outlook there. The Ukrainian armed forces clearly focusing on Crimea. Obviously, it was annexed by Russia in 2014. Currently, the action seems to be around the strategically vital Kinburn Spit. How do you assess Ukraine's battlefield movements there at the moment? That's what this is all about. And I would say that all roads lead to Crimea. 
There's no doubt that Ukraine is going to continue until they have liberated Crimea. I think that starts formally, probably January, and I think it will be done by the summer. They're going to be looking for ways to avoid going into the teeth of Russian defenses using long-range systems, whether it's HIMARS, rocket launchers, or drones, to hit Russian facilities on the Crimean Peninsula. And it's already having an effect. The Russians have moved their submarines of the Black Sea Fleet. They have moved them from Sevastopol around to Novorossiysk. The Russian Black Sea Fleet is hardly a factor in this conflict. And so I think the combination of choking off logistics and going after these bases over the next few months is how the Ukrainians are going to do this. And I agree with you. I think Crimea is, in the end, is the big nut that has to be cracked. But as you know, it has a particular significance. It is viewed very differently, including by a lot of Russians, even from the territory of Ukraine, and that sense that it is returned to Russia as they see it legitimately, obviously, as not as Ukraine sees it. Shashank Joshi, our defence editor, says victory is within sight, but so too are the risks that brings. And that does raise the nuclear question and the threat that the Kremlin could be prepared to deploy uh, nuclear weapons on the battlefield if Crimea is seriously threatened by Ukraine. Your view? So I read Shashank's uh, excellent article there and agree largely with most of it. The thing is, I just don't believe a nuclear escalation is likely at all. Of course, we have to take it seriously. The Russians have thousands of nuclear weapons, both strategic and tactical nuclear weapons. And clearly, President Putin and many of his supporters don't care how many innocent people might die. But I think it was so important that my president made it very clear that there would be catastrophic consequences for Russia if they made the terrible decision to use a nuclear weapon of any sort. And the fact that President Xi, during the visit of Chancellor Schultz to Beijing about two or three weeks ago, when he said nuclear war is a bad thing and also threatening the use of nuclear weapons is unacceptable, I think the message has gotten through. So the Russians see there's no battlefield advantage and the price will be too high for them to use a nuclear weapon. You used a term earlier which stuck in my mind about America's administration having a misguided view. Who is being misguided and about what? Well, I think there are still uh, people in the administration that were there during the Obama administration. And you'll remember the uh, assessment of Russia as a regional power or we can work with Russia and reset and all these kind of things that they still are hanging on to that. And then in the Pentagon, my longtime friend and former boss, uh, our chairman, General Milley, has a view. And, and I think, of course, he has responsibility that I don't have. He has to be thinking about China and do we have the resources to continue to support Ukraine and be prepared for what could be a conflict with China in the next two to five years. So th those are factors that uh, I think affect how people view what Russia might do and, and support for Ukraine. So to fill out that picture a bit for our, our listeners or to remind, it was at the start of November when General Mark Milley said peace talks between Russia and Ukraine could start this winter. And he believed Ukraine could make no more battlefield gains. I don't think that's your uh, view at all. But the White House also went into damage control as its official line is, of course, is that Ukraine should set the terms of what comes to the table and the timing. You know, General Milley, as you reflect, you've worked with him. Is this a genuine disagreement between the general and the White House, or is it a miscommunication? Usually, 
you would expect that what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense and the National Security Advisor say publicly would be cleared, coordinated, in sync, um, although you would assume and hope, frankly, that when there are differences, that those things are played out in private the way it should be to help inform the policy. In this case, I think that this is a legitimate disagreement, and it's unfortunate that it got out into the public like this because that just breathes oxygen to the Kremlin who's trying to just drag this out longer and longer. And so when there's perceived pressure from the U.S., that tells the Kremlin that uh, they're on the right track. So do the war aims of Ukraine really match up to those of America, or have we sort of dodged round that? And that's maybe why this kind of mixed message or internal degree of conflict did break out into the public sphere. Of course, I don't know. I'm, I'm not privy to the conversations that happened there, but uh, the vast majority of Americans with whom I speak from different places um, want to see Ukraine win, to regain sovereignty, because most people recognize that this is about more than just Ukraine. This is about the so-called international order from which we have all benefited so long. And it's also about prosperity in Europe. American prosperity depends on Europe being prosperous, which depends on stability and security in Europe. When you talk about the international order on which we depend, the security order, that, that brings me to NATO. And Rob Bauer, a Dutch admiral who chairs NATO's military committee, said this week, the alliance needs to show that it's ready to respond to a threat anywhere along its border. You have argued that Europe doesn't have the infrastructure to enable the rapid movement of NATO forces. There's a, some sorts of sticking plasters are being applied there in, in uh, recent moves in the last couple of weeks to expedite that. But is NATO really ready for a long war? And what would need to change quickly as well as uh, in the longer picture to make it ready? Well, of course, uh, Admiral Bauer, when he was chief of defense of the Netherlands, is when the Netherlands stepped forward to be the lead inside the European Union's PESCO construct for improving military mobility. So he knows exactly how to do this and what needs to be done. And it's a combination of NATO saying we've got to be able to move faster than Russian Federation forces or the forces of any other threat. And then the, the Union and the nations have the responsibility to, whether it's improve infrastructure, improve transportation capacity, or change the regulations and uh, diplomatic requirements that make it difficult to cross borders with so-called war materials. That's one thing. The other thing, of course, is we are really, really short of air and missile defense capabilities. This is yet another place where I underestimated what Russia might do. They clearly are willing to use multi-million dollar cruise missiles against apartment buildings. Uh, and in the past, our air defense requirements were based on protecting airports, seaports, critical facilities like that. The requirement for air missile defense is significantly greater than what we thought. And then finally, and I think this is what Lord Robertson was talking about too, our defense industries have got to get into a different mode, which is going to be expensive, to produce enough ammunition and, and weapon systems that we might need for a high-end conflict like what we're seeing in Ukraine. And cohesion in NATO is obviously key to that, to advancing from where the, the bloc is now. But that isn't on the mind of every member. I mean, Turkey is still blocking Sweden and Finland's accession to the group. I'm actually more worried about Hungary than I am Turkey. I, I lived in Izmir for two years as the commander of NATO Allied Land Command. 
my sense is that President Erdogan, who has a very difficult election coming up next year, is going to squeeze everything he can out of his veto right now. And then Turkey will agree to Sweden and Finland uh, joining the alliance. Hungary has said that they will get this done by December, but they, frankly, in many ways, they're more difficult to understand than is Turkey. Let's turn to Vladimir Putin, who, of course, is ultimately pulling the the strings of this conflict. There are reports that military miscalculations have angered Russia's army leaders. You understand the chains of command and you understand where that fits with Russia's military doctrine. What effect do you think loss of confidence in a leader means in this context? And could it lead to the toppling of Putin? You know, in the Russian military, the way to get promoted is to never make a mistake. So you avoid failure. And the way you avoid failure is is to avoid taking risks. That might work if you have overwhelming firepower, manpower, and, and logistics. That sort of command system does not work in the war situation that the Russians currently find themselves. So their command structure, if it doesn't change dramatically, which I don't anticipate because it would require cultural change, is guaranteed to take them to failure. Uh, Now, it's also uh, interesting how I don't believe General Sorovkin, the operational commander, actually takes his orders directly from General Gerasimov or Minister Shoigu. I think he's getting his guidance directly from the top. Uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov seem to have been sidelined. I think uh, Mr. Prigozhin is absolutely not taking orders from the Russian uh, general staff. This does not appear to be a very coherent organization for command and control, for thinking strategically, for allocation of resources, for priorities. And so, yes, you can envision a situation where at some point these different power centers are either so angry with what's happened or they see opportunity. I think it's going to be important to watch what happens in the Kremlin over the next few months. And of course, if you're right, ultimately, and Ukraine triumphs, that does still leave the issue of how the West should think about engaging with Russia facing uh, Mr. Putin defeated on the battlefield and whatever plays out there. Your brief thoughts on that? I don't advocate for regime change, and I'm not advocating for the breakup of the Russian Federation, but I think we absolutely should be thinking about that as a real possibility. We were all happy and surprised at the collapse of the Soviet Union, which occurred so so quickly, or at least to me, and a lot of good things came from it, but also we were not prepared for what happens next, and our governments and, and uh, strategic thinkers ought to be considering how do we deal with that? What, what happens to all the nuclear weapons? What happens to the incredible amounts of money that are tucked away in different places? What happens to the energy infrastructure? Probably some violent breakups will happen where places like Dagestan and uh, perhaps Chechnya see opportunity to finally decolonialize themselves. Are we thinking about that? Last thought, you look back uh, on a very long career in the military and direct involvement in a number of conflicts. And you've, you've seen the successes of the Western Alliance and you've also seen some of the failures up close. What lessons do you think the soldiers of the future will be taking away from the battlefields of Ukraine? Number one, the importance of talented young women and men who are willing to serve. If you can unleash their talent, their creativity, their initiative... That's who's going to be successful. That's what the Ukrainians have done. Uh, the second thing, and this, this may seem uh, unusual, but once again, we have seen what happens when you have 
sergeants, those non-commissioned officers in formations that make people do the right thing, whether it's proper discipline in the field, maintenance, camouflage, all of those kind of things. It's so clear who has sergeants and who doesn't when I look at the videos of Russian tanks being blown apart and, and these sort of things. The third thing, though, is, and we're, we're still not there yet, is the importance of getting the strategic and political objective right up front. 20 years in Afghanistan, I never heard any American president say we're going to win. I never heard that about Iraq. And, and when you can't get the strategic objective correct, if you can't get it clearly laid out for the soldiers and the people, then you're going to uh, wander around trying to figure out what right looks like. Ben Hodges, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for the privilege. And do let us know what you think about anything you've heard in the show. Send your questions, your comments and your feedback to podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. To read more about what's happening inside both Ukraine and Russia, head over to our website. There you'll find a piece on the alarming tug of war over the Zaporizhia power plant, as well as a very insightful article by our Russia editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, about the Russian journalists challenging the Kremlin's media machine from exile. You will need to be a subscriber to read both of those, so if you're not already, why not sign up today? We've got a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.